Good morning, all. How are we? Oh, nice. This side's happy and, and with it. You guys, <laughs> time to bolster. <laughs> Would you join with me in reading this morning Genesis 42, the whole chapter, Joseph's brothers going to Egypt. <sighs> Let's engage in God's word this morning in a way that we never have. Let's see what it is that uh, God is speaking to us into our hearts. So Genesis chapter 42, reading from the NIV. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin Joseph's brother with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep. But then he came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. 
Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, The man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We were twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who is Lord over the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, so I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you, and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. Amen. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone going? Good. Oh, wow, there you are. I like that feedback. Um, we're going to continue our series uh, looking at Jacob through the passage in Genesis. And before we get into that, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to discuss God's word and what it means to have a God who sometimes takes away. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We pray you open it to our hearts today. And we pray that you open our hearts to what you have to say to us. We pray that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do my PowerPoint up there. Yes. There we go. This is a painting by Gustav Ferdinand Metz, 1847. This is the death of Rachel, Jacob's first and truest love. Um, We saw her die back in chapter 35. She dies shortly after the birth of her second son, Benjamin. You can see there Jacob holding her hand. Uh, It's a travel scene because the labor pains come upon her as they're going from one place to another, so they kind of have to pull over with all their camels and all their their stuff and just try and, uh, and deal with the birth there. But... That's what happens. A little Benjamin is in the arms of a woman behind her, possibly a handmaiden, Bilhah, her other son, Joseph, a young boy at, that, uh, at this point, probably about seven years old, stands near to her feet uh, and near the care of another woman, maybe her sister Leah, who will now need to be a mother to Joseph from this point on. We're looking at chapters 32 through to, uh, to 35, 
And we're going to look at them again in a few weeks, uh, because right now we're following Jacob's story. We're going to double back, and we're going to look at Joseph's role in the same passages. But while Jacob's role uh, in today's passages is relatively minor compared to how much Joseph we see, and even what Joseph's brothers accomplish and get into, this represents a significant final or certainly penultimate chapter in Jacob's relationship with God and the covenant he's inherited from his father. These chapters are a pretty well-known story, uh, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat story. His, uh, his, uh, Joseph, Prince of Dreams is a popular, well, second-rate kind of uh, movie after the Prince of Egypt one you might have heard of or seen. Uh, DreamWorks made that as well. It's a pretty popular Christian story. We know it pretty well. We heard a bunch of it there. Uh, Joseph has worked his way into power in Egypt. We know that he got thrown into this cistern. He was sold by his brothers into slavery early on. He went through this process of of interpreting dreams and and working his way into favor. And finally, he's got some station. He's got some authority once again. And he's got, in fact, a whole lot of blessing that God has poured into him through this really negative circumstance. And then a famine hits the area, which he's prepared for because God has uh, allowed him to interpret this vision. So Egypt has been saving up grain for seven years. And uh, so they have a whole big stockpile of grain. The brothers go to Egypt looking for this grain. They don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them. He chooses to torment them a bit, uh, to test them, to see if they've changed since they sold him into slavery. And ultimately, the story ends with Joseph reconciling to his brothers and his grateful father who was ready to die in despair, getting a kind of a second wind at the end of his life to see his son who he thought was dead. From Joseph's part in the story, it's about trusting God in adverse circumstances and forgiveness and restoration and God working good through man's evil. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But this week, we're looking at Jacob's part in this story. and That begins with despair. A man who has lost his beloved wife and all that remains of her in his life are the two sons that they had together. And he never seems to recover from this loss or hasn't seemed to yet in the passage. Ten years after she is gone. Joseph is about 17 and he vanishes. His sons lie to him and he believes his son's been devoured by some wild animal. Now all that remains of Rachel in his life is in little Benjamin. And Benjamin grows into a young man and then famine strikes the land. The entire house of Jacob is threatened with starvation and this strange erratic ruler in Egypt is demanding that Jacob send his beloved son in order that his household might live. It's no accident uh, that the passage spends a lot of time calling him Jacob again rather than Israel. It's a bit of a relapse in Jacob's character here into the Jacob that we used to know, the runner, the avoider, uh, the one whom God must bring to heal by prying Jacob's hands off the controls of his life one finger at a time. But by the end of the story, we see that God provides and God restores what is lost and We have a God who, in a sense, quickens the dead to life, even as we despair that he has abandoned us. We're going to look at these uh, particularly three parts in the story where Jacob speaks and what that tells us, and I'll fill in the blanks with a summary of the story as we go. Great. So it starts like this in chapter 42. A famine has struck the region, and Jacob, the same Jacob who returned his, uh, to his family's land, having acquired such huge flocks from his uncle Laban, this enormous wealth, he finds that his tribe now has no grain in this famine. That means that the flocks will die. That means the people will die. 
But the king of Egypt, assisted by his mysterious servant, who interprets dreams, has been banking this excess grain for seven years so that they have food to spare. Starting at verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. And then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. This is kind of an unintentionally funny scene to start with, or maybe intentionally funny. Jacob's about 130 years old at this point. Um, his youngest, Benjamin, is about 30 years old. Benjamin's 30 in this passage and has 10 sons of his own. But there is a famine in the land, and there's nothing for the flocks to graze on. There's not really much for the shepherds to do. So the scene starts with these sons, ranging from 45 to 30 years of age, lounging around in the house with nothing to do. Someone tells Jacob that there's grain in Egypt. Jacob's kind of in this, uh, like a sad old man who lives in the house while his sons do all the work and talk to all the people they trade with. He's probably the last one to hear anything. And so someone, maybe a servant or one of the handmaidens, tells Jacob, you know, there's a lot of grain in Egypt. Maybe we could send some of these bums down to get some of that grain and pick it up and bring it back. And in my opinion, this conversation has to happen in front of the sons because of the way they keep looking at each other, which is a funny thing. Like The last mention they had of Egypt with them was when they lied to their father and said that Joseph vanished, and they actually sold him to slavers who were heading down to Egypt. So they don't particularly want to go to Egypt um, because it's awfully close to the secret shame they're all wise enough to regret by now. The whole scene plays out like a bit, like a, like a sketch like a servant runs in, my Lord Jacob, good news, there's grain in Egypt. Uh, they're trading fairly to everyone who treats with them. We only need to send some able-bodied young men down there to load it up and bring it back and we'll all be saved. And then Judah looks at Reuben. <laughs> Reuben looks at Simeon. Simeon looks at Zebulun. Egypt. And Jacob stares at them being all weird. What do you mean he's standing around doing this for? Why are you staring at each other like that? Go, get out of here, get us some grain. And what else can they do? So they saddle up their donkeys, they head south for Egypt. But Jacob would not send their brother Benjamin because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Now that's a telling feature of this story. Sometimes this story is told, we get the impression that Benjamin is just kind of a lad, a little boy or a 10-year-old boy or something. He's 30 years old. He's capable. Later in this story, when they all move to Egypt, uh, we learn that Benjamin has 10 sons. He ain't no little boy anymore. But Jacob is kind of a broken man. The loss of Rachel broke him so much that he's made a kind of an idol out of the family that he's had through Rachel and this child that he has who represents that. He's distorted the fabric of his family through this favoritism so badly that the jealousy in there with Joseph's brothers has almost killed him and almost killed Joseph. And the best moral response that they could summon was to merely sell him into slavery. And Jacob is afraid that harm might come to Benjamin, his only remaining premium son, as opposed to all the other sons who he's happy to send into harm's way. Father, may I go to Egypt with the others to get grain? No, Benjamin, you are too precious to me, my baby boy. I couldn't bear it if anything happened to you. But what if something happens to one of the others? Well, look, <laughs> it's just a risk we have to take in life. You've got to know when to hold them. 
No end of folding. That might be a little harsh to Jacob. His family life has been a tangled mess for a long time. And the best argument that the Bible makes against multiple marriage is the story of Jacob's multiple marriages. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel and have children with Rachel and to be happy with Rachel. He was duped into marrying Rachel's sister also, and he tries to do right by her. But when then the baby wars happen, which we've seen before, Leah has kids, Rachel doesn't. Rachel demands children through her surrogate, then Leah demands the same. And eventually Rachel has Joseph, the child who represents the life that Jacob wanted but couldn't have. And then seven years later, she has a second child, Benjamin, and then she is gone. And he is there with two very young boys that she gave him and this whole gaggle of additional wives and children whom he did not ask for, but nonetheless honors and supports. And then 10 years later, Joseph is gone. And then it's just 10-year-old Benjamin and him and the rest. And his attitude was not without flaw, but you'd need to have a heart of stone to not see how a flawed man could end up with just such an attitude as this. And there's one more thing that might have been on Jacob's mind and Jacob's son's mind as they contemplate going to Egypt. Back in Genesis 15, God established his covenant with Abram. And he said that he would bless him and multiply his descendants, but also, incidentally, that his descendants would be mistreated and enslaved for 400 years in a land that was not their own. So look forward to that. Abram must have passed this on to his son Isaac. Isaac must have passed this on to Jacob. It would be a pretty glaring omission not to tell your descendants about that. Jacob must have known that there is a chance that the time has come and that anyone he sends into Egypt is going to be captured and enslaved. And he can't bear the idea of sending Benjamin and all that Benjamin represents into that chance. So Benjamin stays home and the other ten ride their donkeys to Egypt, trying not to look each other in the eye as they confront the, uh, the shame that this journey represents. And when they arrive, Joseph recognizes them and goes through this whole sequence of deceiving them. We'll look at that in detail when we look at Joseph's story. But the summary is that when they arrive, Joseph pretends to be this suspicious kind of crazy ruler, accusing them of being spies. He demands their life story. They tell him about their family, and Joseph says, Aha, you spies, but I'll see your other brother before I stop messing around with you. I'm going to lock up one of you in prison, and you can go home. We read that part. So he locks up Simeon. He sends them away with the grain they purchased. He also has his servants secretly refund all the money they spent to buy that grain and put it back in their sacks, and they only discover that on the way home. They assume this is some kind of error, some stupid servant mistake, giving them back their money, um, but they understand that God is probably punishing them for what they've done before, and they're probably right uh, through the instrument of Joseph. Either way, it is really devastating to the case that they are not spies and honest men um, to have all this money with them as they go. They dealt dishonestly with their brother, and now the world has been bent back dishonestly on them because God is just and God won't be denied. Jacob, of course, is mortified. This is very bad. Uh, this Egyptian fruit loop has demonstrated he doesn't like my family. Uh, he's willing to lock them up. He wants Benjamin to come to Egypt too, and now it really looks like we've robbed him. So this guy, even if he doesn't hate my family for no reason, now he's got a reason to hate my family. And to Jacob's surprise, he finds he actually does care 
about one of the other sons that has been captured. From verse 36, their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if, you do not bring, if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes on him, from the, harm comes to him on the journey that you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. First, my son will not go down there with you, harsh, painful, ultimately, however, because of the actions that Jacob might know about, but it's not spelled out at this point, probably deserved. He accuses his sons of being so careless with their brothers that they are depriving him of his children, which isn't true with Simeon, that wasn't from carelessness, but it is certainly true with Joseph. The more true, in fact, with Joseph than Jacob knows. Reuben tries to bargain with his father, offering his own sons. If you think we're that careless, you can have my own sons as collateral. But Jacob doesn't want the promise of revenge. He wants his only son by the woman he loves to remain safe. And so he says, no, whatever happens, Benjamin is going nowhere. If something would happen to him, then I would die in misery. You will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. He's 130 years old. He knows he's going to die soon. But to die knowing that both of Rachel's sons had slipped through his hands into death or slavery, he cannot bear the idea of it. But meanwhile, the rest of his family is genuinely threatened with starvation. Jacob doesn't know this yet, but God's promise to Abraham will not be fulfilled through Benjamin. Not even through Joseph. It's the tribe of Judah that becomes the Jews. It's the tribe of Benjamin, in fact, goes through a, a pretty serious legacy of shame, and they're nearly wiped out in a civil war once they get out of Egypt. But Jacob has built in his mind a legacy of what it means for him to be successful as a man and a father and a husband. He should have fallen to his knees like he did when he was going to confront Esau and called out to God and prayed to the God of his father for mercy and aid, but he doesn't. When Rachel dies, it seems like Jacob never seems to come to terms with God for taking her from him. And when Joseph dies, Jacob is inconsolable. He actually says in the text, I will not be comforted, I will mourn until the day I die. These losses are real and they are painful. But chosen of God as he is, he has made his own pain into an idol which is obstructing his relationship with God. And that's an enduring threat to the faith of God's people because it's not an idol of wood or of stone that can be smashed or discarded or buried. It's an idol made out of the ruins of the love that God actually wants us to cultivate for one another. It's a perversion of something that God wants us to cultivate. How many professed believers in God leave church, stop talking to God, go into spiritual exile when they lose a loved one? especially a spouse or a child. It's a lot. Of course they do. Because it's a flaw that we've built into the new evangelicalism, the way that we do church and Christianity in our modern world. Because the world is full of pain and loss. There's no getting around that. And everyone loses people, and often before we are ready to lose them. 
And somewhere along the way, through all of the revivals and the seeker sensitivity and the search for relevance in a changing culture, Christians have too often praised the God who gives and remarked too little about the God who takes away. The world is supposed to look at us and say, look how happy they are when times are good and how well they comfort each other and how consoled they are when times are bad. I need that. But too often they see a saccharine, sappy veneer of faith and they say, this person is out of touch with the real pain of life. They have nothing to offer me. And there's a lot of culprits to why this is sort of in the air in church culture. Some of it is about churches who have a shallow gospel teaching that doesn't provide genuine answers to genuine questions. Uh, Some of it's about churches where a happy, clappy sentimentality uh, is the status quo, and so the miserable and lonely actually feel more miserable and lonely going there. A lot of it has to do with the fact that life is so good for most people in the 21st century that we can actually grow up without ever often having to confront death Unlike every previous century in human history, we don't lose brothers and sisters all the time to polio and predators and things like that. It's possible to build a faith that promises life after death without really understanding what death is. Young people particularly can know intellectually that one day we will die and we'll go to heaven, but not have any preparation for the real tearing scourge that death is. The lucky ones live long and they die with dignity and losing them is hard. But when an accident happens or suddenly a cancer diagnosis scythes through someone's life and takes away a child or to be a child and to lose a parent in that way, you can't just wave that off and say, well, they're going to heaven. A death like that is a bomb that goes off and blows apart the world that you are living in. And a shallow faith, like the seed that lands in the shallow soil and withers in the heat of the sun, cannot survive such a thing. And even a true deep faith can be knocked for a loop, because as confident as we are in eternity, God is making us live our lives on earth. And without a truly deep and compassionate and honest engagement with death and loss and periods in life in which God takes from us, Our faith is unequipped to deal with the real, deepest crises in life. So Jacob doesn't want to let Benjamin go, because Benjamin is how he copes with his loss. But the other sons won't go back just to get thrown into the dungeon for being spies without the proof they've been asked to bring back, and the famine is real and pressing, and eventually Jacob is forced to give up. He sends Benjamin with them on the return trip, And they take twice the money to pay back the interest. They take honey and spices and gifts uh, to apologize for the inconvenience. And Jacob, this man of God who wrestled with an angel and confronted his, his brother who he expected would kill him and buried the idols that had plagued his house, he can't bring himself to pray. He says to his sons, may God have mercy on you, but as for me, I am bereaved, I am bereaved. He's given up. May God have mercy on you because he's taken everything from me. And so they return to Egypt. Joseph sees Benjamin, who was seven the last time he saw him, now all grown up. And he cracks and he reveals to his brothers who he is. They reunite. He forgives them. He says, what you intended for evil, God, intended for good. Go home, get our father, bring the family to Egypt. The God of Israel has not abandoned us. Sin. 
chapter 35, verse 25 and on. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything that Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I am convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. He's 130 years old. He is preparing to die in misery. He expects his sons will be enslaved and he will die broken and alone. He sends out 10 sons the first time and nine come back. He sends out 10, including the one he was holding back the last time. He does this as the act of faith and obedience that he is capable of in this time. Fine, take him. God have mercy. And 11 sons come back with news of the 12th being alive and well and rich and cared for and successful and blessed by God and faithful to God and everything Rachel could have wanted him to be. And he can't believe it and he processes and when he finally does, he says this, we get this beautiful phrase in the text there, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. New life swept into him and he said, all right, I'm convinced I'll go. They pack, they head back to Egypt to reunite with the son that he thought he had lost. And that'll happen next week in chapter 46. But it's at this point, now that Jacob has been given this sense of hope that seems to bring him back to life, that he seems to finally, finally stop grieving. Both from Joseph, who he believes now to be alive, but also perhaps from Rachel, whose memory can finally settle in his heart. Before they set out, he offers a sacrifice to God, and we'll see the fruit of that restoration of the covenant in the next chapter. But I wonder if you noticed this. I don't want to make too much of a big deal about it. Jacob and Israel are both names that Jacob has, both that he has now, and they've used kind of interchangeably a lot of the time throughout his story. Um, but at least in this part of 45, it seems significant to me. In the run-up to this news being accepted and Jacob's heart softening, it's Jacob, 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 and the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said... I'm convinced that in the, in the middle of this same sentiment, the story changes Jacob's first name from what we know. He who grasps the heel, ankle tap, the one who runs from his problems, to Israel, the one who wrestles with God and men and overcomes. It's a subtle thing. It's not, a, not an extra secret code to read for extra special messages, but it's something like saying... When you're operating in that misery and idolatry of grief, you are failing to be who God made you to be. God doesn't give us a promise that he will give and give and never take. He doesn't even promise us that he will give back to us what we lose if we just pray or act faithfully. But he does promise to be a comforter to the grieving and a safe place for the vulnerable and strength to the weak and rest for the weary. And in Jacob's story, he doesn't know he's not delivering all of his sons into slavery even when he sets off with them. He thinks he's going to go and see Joseph and then die, and then he is trusting God with everything else. He doesn't know if he's going to, he, he doesn't know that he is in fact going to live another 17 years once he gets there. He doesn't know that God will speak to him and assure him that, yes, go to Egypt, you and your family will be safe there. But finally, after this protracted period of misery in his life, he remembers the God of his father. 
He remembers that everything he has ultimately is held in stewardship of that God and family and wealth and anything else. And he ceases this bitterness towards God for what God had taken, which was poisoning his family and dragging him into an early grave. Pastor David had mentioned in a previous sermon, The Hound of Heaven, a poem by Francis Thompson. I very much like it. It's a poem about a man fleeing from God who he perceives as taking and taking from him. But God relentlessly pursues him, stripping away the things he clings to until finally he breaks and he has to confront his divine pursuer only to learn that he is, it is the running from God, not God himself, which is doing him this damage. And the later lines sound like this. All which I took from thee, I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou mightest seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. It's knowing the God who takes knowing him well enough that we can clasp his hand, exhausted and grieving, knowing he is our good father, that he gives our faith meaning and power to those people who have lost those they love in this world. Knowing God and honestly knowing pain gives reality and depth to the knowledge that new life awaits us beyond the grave. And that's what it means to have a God who has conquered sin and death. A father who, like Jacob, is indeed willing to send his precious son into the hazards of the world to secure salvation for all his children. A savior who, like Joseph, in Jacob's weary eyes, was dead but is now alive. And not just alive, but alive and raised up to such glory and authority, he has provision to save everyone. Only such a God and only such a savior can make sense of a world as deadly and sinful as the one we are in. And it does us well to know that God and his saving son better each day. So let's pray to him. Father God, you're our Lord, our protector, our gifter, our provider. And we thank you for the blessings that you have given to us. But we recognize, Lord that what you have given us does not belong to us. Our wealth and our loved ones even are held in trust as your treasures in a steward's keeping. Help us to seek your will and your comfort, even in the midst of such losses that break our hearts and pull down the sky around us. Help us when we must grieve to not make an idol of that grief. Help us to clasp your hand and to walk with you, secure in the knowledge that all which we fancy to be lost, you have stored up for us in our eternal home. We ask this in your son's precious saving name. Amen.